Welcome to Wednesday night here, and uh, we're going to be going through the book of Genesis here. We've already been going through the book of Genesis. We're going to be picking it up here in chapter 36. Chapter 36 goes through the life of Esau, not, not so much the life of Esau, but goes through the genealogy of Esau, and then we move into looking at and beginning our look at the life of Joseph, which is going to encompass really the, the rest of our time in the book of Genesis. Fascinating um, person and uh, just a great look going through there. But here in chapter 36, verse 1, let me just get right into it. Here's what it says. It says, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebaioth. Now, Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Reuel, and Aholibama, that's a great name, isn't it? That should be on baby name lists right there, I think. Aholibama, it's like, you can call that child, and it sounds like you're saying a lot more than just calling her name, right? Or his name, I should say. Aholibama bore uh, or no, her name, uh, bore Jeosh, Jeosh, Jalem, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So now, people have divided up the book of Genesis really kind of using these genealogies as sections and divisions in the book of Genesis. It's, it's the Hebrew word Toledoth, where you got these 10 different Toledoths. This is the history it'll say, or the genealogy, or the generations of, and it's really kind of generation, it's sort of where we get that term Genesis, in a sense, Genesis um, means in the beginning, but it's the idea of, here's the generations, and so you got these 10 divisions, ultimately, through the book of Genesis, that kind of, uh, many scholars divide up the book that way, so here we're seeing that the genealogy of Esau Interestingly enough, we've seen eight of these Toledos from chapters 1 to chapter 35. And now the last three in the book here, two of them are listed here in chapter 36. And I said there's 10. There's actually 11, but Esau is counted kind of twice here. In chapter 36, we'll see two Toledos, but they're both the genealogy of Esau. One's kind of tracking, you know, his wives and his sons, and the rest is, the other one is sort of tracking his, the rest of his um, heritage with grandchildren and such. But we begin by looking at the wives of Esau. Interestingly, we were introduced to them back in chapter 26, two of them there, another one in chapter 28, but yet the names aren't matching up. If you're reading through the book of Genesis, you know, a lot of people love to, you know, kind of find discrepancies or, you know, what's going on, why do some of these names change? It, some have said, could be that these are different wives. It could very well be that these are wives that have sort of changed their name and that's kind of interesting because in chapter 26 and in chapter 28 we see the names that are given there um, and it's possible they went by different names when they lived with Esau in the land of Canaan as they're still with you know um, they're still with Isaac and Rebekah there living in the land of Canaan it's possible they went by a different name while living in Canaan as they had when they were living uh, among the Hittites where Esau kind of gathered their, uh, his brides from. So it's very possible that, um, it's very possible that when in Genesis 26 and 20, we see Judith, Basemath, and Mahala, it could very well be that Judith is Oholibama, daughter of 
um, Anna, and it, and it could be again that that father had a, you know, uh, a difference in name or a, a change of name. Then base math would become Adah that we see in chapter 36. They're both the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And then Mahalath, Mahala, daughter of Ishmael, would be base math, who is also the daughter of Ishmael. So it could be that they had a, a name change. And so that's really most likely what we're looking at here. And so the names given in Genesis 36 appear then to be their actual um, names here of Esau's wives. Going back to what we read at in, in Genesis 26, verse 34, it says, when Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives Judith, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind, it says, to Isaac and Rebekah. Remember, Esau is the guy who's being driven by the flesh. He goes and he takes wives uh, of a group of people that he shouldn't have been taking wives from. And he did this. He's kind of, you know, at odds with Jacob already. He's una- he goes and takes these wives, and now they become just a grief to the family. Esau took these wives from a pagan culture and very likely changed their names so that they could assimilate all the more into Esau's family. Perhaps thinking that, well, maybe you know, they will be a little bit more accepted if they're kind of seen with these new names, perhaps, you know, like they're going to become like, you know, one of us. But here's the problem. Their nature stayed the same. And they were a grief now, it says, to the family, to Isaac and Rebecca. You know, we can do many things on an outward level, can we? When we look at that kind of picture and, and the potential of what was going on, we can do a lot of things on an outward level, try to clean ourselves up, try to change an appearance or change an identity, but without an internal change, it does no good. See, many people have gone through a, a renaming of their identity, but without a regeneration, you're still living in that old nature. It's not enough just to come and you know, call yourself a Christian. You need to be surrendered to Christ and have him dwelling in you. A lot of people love to go to church thinking, well, if I go to church on Sundays, you know, I mean, I'm kind of putting in the effort. That's going to, you know, really make me seem like a Christian, is it not? But yet go into the world without having a heart change and they just continue on living in that old nature. See, it's only Jesus that can come and make us new and he makes us new from the inside out. He comes and he changes the heart. He changes, gives us a new nature now in and through him. So this chapter is a reminder that there's two paths to take. There's the way of Esau, which is living for self, and there's the way of God's people, which is ultimately then dying to self and living in and for him. You see, Esau, Esau's life is a tragic one. Though amazingly, he was still blessed materially, that's no doubt just as a result of being a descendant of Abraham. He was blessed materially, yet that's all that he will have. I think of Jesus' words in, in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, where he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What, what is it going to gain you? What are you going to get out of it if you think you can live in this life and, and have all that you want in this world and yet give up your own soul? Not have that change that takes place, that transformation and regeneration from within. You see, Esau missed out on a far greater blessing because he had an appetite more for the old nature than he did in having a new nature. And walking according to that new man in and through the Lord. It it goes the same for those who, like I said, play church on Sunday, but then through the rest of the week are just, 
you know, living like the world or in the world, and it, and it doesn't mesh, and it will leave you frustrated and unsatisfied. There are a lot of people that have too much of the world in them to be happy in the Lord, and too much of the Lord to be happy in the world, and they're just sitting there in this in-between, feeling frustrated, compromised, and unsatisfied. Every person must choose that path, right? Am I going to be surrendered to Jesus and allow him to make me a new creation? Or am I going to hold on to my old identity and ultimately forfeit the greater blessing of what God will have for me? That's the story of Esau here, essentially. Don't let it be your story as well. It says in verse six, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. So Esau, remember, he's that guy that he really wanted that blessing from Isaac. Or Jacob came in, scooped it up, and yet Isaac is saying, or sorry, Jacob, sorry, Esau, saying to Isaac, is there still not another blessing you can give to me? Yet we see here from, you know, verse 68 that Esau had much. He, he was still very blessed. He was blessed materially, which ultimately was most important to Esau, being a man that was driven by the flesh, but this is all that he had to show for it, a material blessing. If God blesses so abundantly those who are not chosen, what is the magnitude of his blessings for those who are chosen? If non-spiritual people experience such outpourings of merely common grace, how great must the special grace of the regenerate be? It tells us in Ephesians 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So what a, a great blessing that we have in and through the Lord and all that he's done for us. He's a, a blessing God and he's even blessing Esau in a way materially. But he would miss out on the greater blessing, the blessing spiritually. And we're thankful that God chooses to bless us in that way. So moving on to verse nine, it reads this, and, and again we see that repetition now. This is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir now. So the first one was kind of while he's in Canaan, gives a little bit of genealogy, the children he has now, we're seeing as he moves on to Mount Seir now. It says, these were the names of Esau's son, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, and Reol, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau, and the sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Now Timna was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. Verse 13, these were the sons of Reol, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Aholobamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, and she bore to Esau, Jeish, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, were chief Taman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kenaz, chief Korah, chief Ketam, and chief Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They were the sons of Adah. These were the sons of Reuel, Esau's son. So you just see the list is continuing on. 
going down from generation to generation. Verse 18, these are the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife, chief Jaish, chief Jalem, and chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Aholabama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were the chiefs. Just take a minute now and just let that all sink in and just let that, just meditate on that for a little bit. I know there's a lot I just read there. I don't want to miss anything there spiritually for you here in that whole section. <laughs> but don't worry, we're not going to continue on with those names the rest of the chapter here. But just give you a bit of an idea here that, again, this list or the genealogy of Esau being repeated, but now more so, the first list was, you know, containing his wives and sons in the land of Canaan. Now this brings us to his new home in Edom, which was originally Mount Seir. It's down to the, the southeast there. And the Edomites also held that rock city of Petra that we've talked a little bit in, in Revelation on Sundays as it's um, most likely a place that God is going to take the nation of Israel in the tribulation period for them to be uh, safeguarded. It's a fortress there. Petra has uh, this narrow winding gorge that can only be reached into the place there through that winding gorge. It was a very defendable city. In fact, Petra was so defensible that it was said that a dozen men could protect Petra against a whole army. So this is a place, uh, an area that the Edomites began to inhabit. And it'll be a place that God is, we believe, going to take Israel to in the last days to be protected from the Antichrist and the uh, armies that are coming against God's people in those last days. So here in that passage I read, verse 9, to 19 we see sons being born grandsons being born to Esau and we also notice that these descendants began to reign now in this area of Mount Seir they weren't just children they were chiefs now they're overlords and we begin to see more I think of that character of Esau's descendants and among some of his descendants we saw an interesting name pop up if you caught it in verse 12 we saw Amalek Amalek is very likely the father of the Amalekites, and they were a people that were very problematic for the nation of Israel. They were enemies of Israel. It says in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Go and utterly destroy, wipe out the Amalekites. And, and you'll remember, Saul failed to do that. And it was a, a great offense to the Lord that Saul didn't do that. And it further caused him to be stripped of that title of king and yet, what we see, interestingly enough, Amalekites become a picture of the flesh in, in Scripture and how we're to basically annihilate the flesh. We're to have nothing to do with the flesh. Saul kept, you know, the king of the Amalekites and it was eventually an Amalekite that ended up killing Saul. It's a great picture for us, isn't it, of how if we don't crucify the flesh, if we don't put to death the flesh, we think, oh, it's only one little area 
It's one small little thing that I think is gonna actually be of help. It's gonna be profitable as Saul was actually thinking. It can end up being that which destroys you. The Amalekites are a great picture and reminder of that here in the life of Saul. So we see repeated in this chapter that Esau is Edom. He's the father of the Edomites. And there's some strong words that are reserved for Esau in scripture. Malachi chapter one, verse two to three. Um, Obadiah, Romans nine, verse 13. The book of Obadiah is an entire book. It's a short book, but it's an entire book that's written in judgment against the Edomites and Esau. See, he stands as a person and line which wanted to prevent the Messiah from coming, just like Haman and Esther, Herod the Great in Matthew 2, 16, Herod Antipas in Luke 23, 11. Interestingly, the Herods were the last true Edomites. And here they are right to the end looking to wipe out essentially Israel and the, the plan of God. Well, chapter 20 to, uh, sorry, verse 20 to verse 30, this, this gives us an account of those who inhabited Seir, which you know, be, really became known as Edom, uh, before Esau came in there. So that list is the, dis, the, the people that were inhabitants of Seir previously. Verse 31 to 43 gives us a list of various kings and their cities. And it appears Esau established himself long before Jacob and his family did. Yet what's interesting, as Esau really begins to develop all these chiefs and these lines of you know, rulers long before Israel was established that way. Yet today in fulfillment of what God said in his word, Edom is a wasteland and its people are gone. Ezekiel 35 verse seven and nine talks about that prophecy against Edom, against Esau. Israel, however, is the one that has been established and is in their land and experiencing the blessings of God today. See, as believers, it's not about what you, know, you can achieve for yourself or what you can muster up. It's about living for the Lord and allowing him to establish you, which will bring the greatest glory to God, which will be to your ultimate blessing. Like Esau, we can all sit there and go, oh, I can be driven in the flesh, I can make things happen, but yet, what does the Lord have for you? And sometimes that process is gonna be a much longer process, but it's gonna be much more rewarding, fulfilling, fruitful, and lasting work. Secular greatness may develop faster, but spiritual faithfulness is what is truly lasting. Young Esau could not see beyond what was in front of him. He possessed no vision, no spiritual imagination. He had no eyes or mind for God or for heaven or for hell. Spiritual realities were to him dull and opaque. He was a single dimensional soul. Pleasure now was his guiding star. For him, all that mattered was the excitement of the hunt. A hearty meal, a woman's company, all good things in the proper perspective and place. But pleasure is all that Esau could see. Thus he despised his birthright, selling it for a single meal. And likewise, he despised his heritage for the pleasure of Canaanite women. Esau's blithe arrogance brutalized everything precious to life and fixed him on his tragic course. Hughes, Ken Hughes goes on to say this. He says, for every generation, the challenge is the same. To see that there's more to life than a meal or a video game or sports or a party or a movie or an indulgence of some kind. To see, as Paul put it, that things that are seen 
are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The challenge is to seek the things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, to set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. The challenge, he says, is to forego the lazy brain death that comes so easily to the young who ignore the teaching and preaching of God's word and to listen with all you have. Do not sell what God has given you through his word, your church, and your family for a cheap pleasure. That's a quote from Ken Hughes, and it's a reminder, or Esau, I think, is a, a very fitting reminder of a life that was lived that way. But now we turn from the pages of Esau to focus in on a descendant of Jacob and to look at the life of Joseph now in chapter 37. As we get into the story of Joseph, we find it to be a very exciting, exhilarating one to see where he comes from and to where he gets to. And what's truly exciting in the story of Joseph is to see the sovereignty of God orchestrating all things at just the right time to bring about his purposes. That's the the life of Joseph so clearly. You know, in the life of Joseph, there's no great supernatural miracles that are, are, are at work to bring things into play. Just the perfect providence of God that's clearly seen in and through the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph is a study that reveals a man of incredible character, faithfulness, and a life that served as arguably one of the greatest biblical pictures of Christ. And we're gonna take time in coming weeks to really point out some of these great pictures, types of Jesus Christ in and through the life of Joseph. It's a, it's a long list that just fascinates you to see how God is intertwining kind of the gospel message, the life of Jesus in and through the Old Testament. Now, the life of Joseph also is a fascinating story that takes up almost a, a quarter of the book of Genesis to detail. It's the longest complete narrative that we have in the book, which causes us, I think, really to press in and take special attention to its purposes and message. The life of Joseph has just some wonderful examples and encouragements for us, and I think no life more greatly reflects the promise that God gives in Romans eight twenty eight that We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purposes. The life of Joseph greatly uh, lives out that verse, or that verse is greatly evidenced through the life of Joseph. Now, as mentioned, more chapters are written about Joseph than Abraham or Isaac or anyone else in the book of Genesis. More chapters dealing with Joseph than were written for the whole first period of Genesis from chapters one to 11, which details, I mean, some pretty significant events. Creation, you know, Noah's Ark, the, the, you know, the, the fall, the uh, rebuilding the Tower of Babel, all these things, I mean, some pretty significant events, and yet 11 chapters covers that, yet Joseph's life covers even more content than all of that. David Guzik says this, Enoch shows the walk of faith. Noah shows the perseverance of faith. Abraham shows the obedience of faith. Isaac shows the power of faith. Jacob shows the discipline of faith. Along these lines, we could say that Joseph shows the triumph of faith. Joseph never complained, and he never compromised in his walk with the Lord. Just a truly great example and blessing for us. It says here, getting into this now, chapter 37, verse 1, 
It says, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them, of them to his father. Verse three, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Um, we're, and we're really, when we go through the life of Joseph, uh, you we're really gonna follow along uh, theologically with um, Joseph's Technicolor dream code on request of my wife, actually. Just, we're gonna kind of follow that. No, we're not gonna do that. But some of you are asking, can we watch the movie when we're done with this? We'll, we'll see, we're not sure, but. Um, anybody seen that movie? Joseph's Technicolor dream code? Yeah, some fans here? Okay. <laughs> Michelle's like, come on, who hasn't seen that? I don't think I've seen it all the way through, honey. I, I know, I need to do that, okay. Do I need to do that, guys? Do I need to do that? Are you sure? Okay. This is my chance to get out of it. Thanks for throwing me under the bus. All right. So the story begins with Joseph here as a 17-year-old who's feeding the flock with his brothers, right? Joseph says, brings a bad report of his brothers to his father, and, and this continues to set that spiral of sibling conflict spinning rapidly into the sin that will be committed by his brothers. And amazingly, it's that very thing that's gonna be the catalyst for God's plan and purposes now to be set in motion. Now, we're not sure what exactly that bad report was, right? It seems that it was something that was not good or even wise to share. The word for bad is translated in Genesis 50, 20, Jacob, um, you know, saying, uh, or Joseph, sorry, speaking the word evil, he uses the word evil, same word, as the word bad here. And the word report is elsewhere translated as slander or mocking. So it seems that you could say almost that Joseph brought this kind of evil sort of slander that was something that maybe did not need to be shared in that way. It was an unprofitable thing to do, it would seem. Now, whatever this report was, this is not the reason for his brothers having such contempt for him this was something that has begun long ago and it was ultimately instigated by Jacob. See, Jacob had favored Joseph and that was clear from the very beginning. Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, the, the woman that, that Jacob loved. And when Jacob was about to meet Esau again, Jacob had no idea how Esau was gonna respond to him. He's thinking, man, Esau might just go ballistic on me. So he divided up his family in a different um, groups and he put Rachel and Joseph at the very back. Why? So that if Esau and the men with him began to freak out and, and attack, well, Joseph and Rachel would have the easiest way of escape, the most likelihood of escape. Joseph, uh, Jacob was very clearly in front of all of his family, really positioning Joseph in a place above the rest of his kids. The sad thing is, Jacob himself experienced that same kind of dysfunctional family favoritism in his own life. Why? Because Isaac, recall, loved Esau. And Rebekah loved Jacob. And it didn't go well in that environment. And now 
Jacob, sadly, is repeating these same mistakes and it brought hatred and envy towards Joseph that's gonna cause this family dysfunction right now. Listen, it's a lesson for parents, you parents, not to show favoritism. And when you have multiple kids, it can be very tempting to do that very thing. There might be a child that you maybe relate more to, you connect better with, but to favor one is to slight another. And in so doing, you create hurt and harm in the home. I tell all my four kids that I love them all the same. And if I ever had favorites, I would never say who she was. <laughs> Wouldn't do that. It's actually funny because that's the joke. You know, I got three boys, one girl. And he's like, oh, of course you favor that girl. You know, I mean, I do not favor her but there's a difference with her. I'm gonna be more protective around her, right? Obviously, she's my daughter, and so be very much more protective. The boys, I mean, you can handle yourselves, guys. Come on, you don't need me to do that. It's not favoritism, but there's a difference in, in that. So we gotta be careful that we don't show that kind of favoritism and, and, and start to you know, pay more attention to one person over the other, and Jacob did that to the detriment of his family, and it's a lesson he should have learned and understood very clearly. I'm thankful, aren't you, that God shows no partiality with us? Aren't you, God, that God does not choose favorites? I know a lot of you feel that he does with me sometimes, that I'm up there above. I gotta tell you, not the case. It's not, it's not true. All right, no, no favorites, no partiality with the Lord. We're all, and here's the great thing. Ephesians 1 verse 6 says that we are all accepted in the beloved. See, the Lord doesn't look at, at one person over another and say, man, that person's really, really good, really great. Oh, man, I really, uh, it's very easy to love that. No, God says, man, you're accepted in the beloved, it's not because of who you are, it's because of who you are in Christ. And when we are all in Christ, then we are all on equal ground. There's no partiality with the Lord. Praise him for that. Now, to top it off, top it off here, Jacob doesn't try hiding any of this, this favoritism. So what does he do here? We see in our account, right, that he gives Joseph this special coat now. Special coat. And this was more than just a colorful coat. It was a coat of prominence, position, and prestige. Now normally coats were sleeveless, allowing people to be able to work more freely, move around more freely, but this was a coat that was sleeved. It extended lower to the ground. It was not a working man's coat. See, Jacob was more or less communicating that Jacob, or Joseph, sorry, was the heir of the birthright. The firstborn of the wife that he truly loved. Joseph seems to already be in a place of oversight of his brothers as he's the one bringing this report back to his father of his brothers. We might say he's kind of tattletaling, but perhaps this was his position uh, of leadership over his brothers. Now, though Joseph may have lacked a little wisdom and tact in talking about his brothers, he was a very spiritual man. He's a man that heard from God. So we've seen, first of all, Joseph is set apart. Verses one to four, we see now Joseph is a spiritual man. Verses five to 11, look at what we read here in verse five. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I've dreamed. 
There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Let me stop right there. So Joseph has this dream now. And it's one where his brothers are bowing down to him. Anyone ever had those dreams before? People bowing down. I mean, don't share that with us. Maybe take, you know, don't share that with people, but maybe some of you have those dreams. Maybe it's just wishful thinking. I don't know. But these dreams are no doubt from God, as this is a, a very, you know, familiar way of God communicating his people here before they had, you know, the written word of God, the benefit that we have. God would oftentimes communicate to them and communicate through dreams. And we know that this was a dream that was from God as we had the benefit of looking back and seeing, you know, the eventual fulfillment of this. This is not Joseph, some kind of, you know, um, pie in the sky, wishful kind of ideology here and, and, and trying to stick it to his brother. He's like, man, this is God speaking to me. He's a spiritual man. He's hearing from the Lord. This revealed that Joseph had an open heart and an open ear to the things of God. And it appears he was quite confident that this was from God. He goes ahead and shares it with his brothers without hesitating. I would have been probably mulling that over for, you know, a few months or a few years, you know, not sure if I should really, you know, share that, want to share that, or think, is this God? Is this really from you? It seems so, so crazy. But Joseph showed an acuteness to understanding the things of God and being a vessel now in his plans, even though he could have yet practiced a little more tact in sharing these details with his brothers, like he could have had a little bit more tact perhaps in bringing this bad report to his father of his brothers. But here he is having this understanding. He's got an open heart and ears to hear from the Lord. He's hearing from God here. Look at verse nine. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I've dreamed another dream and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So Joseph has another dream and this is again just a further confirmation, just kind of cementing the, the you know, accuracy and clarity of God speaking to him. He has a, another dream much the same, but this time now, you know, it's a little bit different. The, the sun and the moon and the stars. The sun is speaking of, uh, of Jacob. And the moon would be his mother. The stars, the 11 stars, are his 11 brothers now. It's the same kind of picture that we saw in Revelation chapter 12 that was speaking of that nation of Israel. So this time now, his father kind of hears he's brought into this. He's gonna be one that's bowing down. He kind of questions the, le the legitimacy of this dream, yet it caused his brothers to envy and despise him all the more. But here's the thing, we must not fret or falter in living spiritual lives before the Lord. Joseph was not only set apart in his favoritism from Jacob, but he was set apart to the Lord. And now he's hearing from the Lord and discerning these things because he's a man that was walking with God open to the things of God. See, when we abide with God and stay close to him, I believe we're in a place where we're that much more able to hear from him and have that spiritual sensitivity. 
Are you taking time to just abide in the Lord? Is he just a, a, a quick, you know, drive through when you're in need? Like, God, yeah, I need a little bit of help here. And we have that quick moment. Or are we just spending time in just sweet communion with him, abiding in him, and developing that spiritual sensitivity like Joseph had to just hear from the Lord? Well, I pray that that would be the case for all of us. And when we're walking close with God, and when we're standing in the truth, listen, it doesn't always mean that the world is going to be ready to receive it, hear it, or, or cozy up to you living that kind of life. Joseph's a man that comes and he just reveals these things that God is speaking to him. And yet we see the reaction is not a favorable one. The reaction of the world is no gauge for, for walking right with the Lord. Sometimes we think if, if I'm truly abiding the Lord and walking close to them, wouldn't the world love it? Wouldn't the world want to be hanging out with me more? Wouldn't the world be accepting more? Listen, it's not the case. It's never been the case. Jesus said it as much. It, the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. And the world's going to hate you because they hated Jesus. If we're standing for the things of Christ, understand the reaction of the world is not always going to be a, favorite, a favorable one. And Joseph is revealing that very experience himself here as the brothers. Even his father doesn't quite know what to make of it. He's kind of keeping the matter in mind, but his brothers continue to envy him and they build up that hatred of him. So we see that Joseph is set apart, seeing Joseph is spiritual. But next we look at Joseph is a servant. Look at verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him saying, What are you seeking? Verse 16, So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they departed from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Notice Joseph's faithfulness here to serve his father. Joseph just willingly says, here I am. When his dad says, hey, I need you to go to your brothers. I need you to go and and, and um, send you to them. See if it's well with them, right? And bring back word to me. And Joseph just quickly replies, here I am. Here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. He's ready to go on this journey now, even though this is kind of like Jacob throwing Joseph in a lion's den, right? I mean, his brothers are just building with this animosity. This fire is just burning in their soul against Joseph. Jacob's like, hey, Joseph, I need you to go check on your brothers. Bring back word to me. Well, this is what, what Joseph's already done at the beginning of the chapter. And it caused his brothers to hate him even more. And yet, at the request of his father, Joseph goes without hesitation. And he doesn't even know where exactly they are. Somewhere in Shechem. Or, or how they'll react, but he goes, see, Christian service for us is not always gonna be glamorous or comfortable. 
And it won't always be convenient. Shechem was 50 miles away from where they were, about a five days journey. But when the Lord says go, we should recognize that obedience will always be the best outcome. Do you understand that? Obedience is always going to be the best outcome. Our natural response all the time is like, well, Lord, what are you talking about? What about this? What about that? How, how am I going to do that? And it's as though we try to get ourselves out of it thinking, maybe God, you haven't thought this through properly. What about this, God? What about that? How's this going to happen? And we try to kind of excuse and argue, and yet the Lord knows all these things. When he calls us, our basic response is simply to say, here I am. And to go knowing that obedience is always going to be the best outcome. We're called to be servants, not to earn favor with God, but because he's shown favor to us. Our lives are his, and it should be our number one desire to say, Lord, I just want to live surrendered to you and live in service to you, to honor you, to bring glory to you, because you've done everything for me. And as we're serving the Lord, this is where we're going to be growing in faith as we see God guide and provide. Sadly, what we see here is that Jacob had flocks in Shechem. Now, some of you remember from our last study that Shechem wasn't a very favorable place for Jacob. He had a very bad experience there. The Dinah incident. And now Jacob's thinking, well, maybe things have blown over a little bit. Maybe we can have a better outcome this time around. But be careful in going back to those places that were once a great fall in hopes that they're going to be better the next time around. Once again, things will not go well for Jacob in this area. More so, won't go well for Joseph. And we see that a certain man found him. Verse 15, notice that. Joseph gets to Shechem, can't find his brothers. But it's not Joseph that finds a man to help him. It's a certain man finds Joseph. Starts to question. What's, what are you seeking? That's like the work of the Holy Spirit that leads us and directs us in the work that God has for us. We may not have everything sorted out, figured out, the plan all before us, but God does, and God's one that's going to lead and direct us. He's not going to let us alone. He's going to be the one that's going to direct our paths. And this man comes along. He finds Joseph, and he's the one that begins to lead him. See, we're never to do the work ourselves or our own ability. It's going to be a tragic outcome when we think that we're going to accomplish God's work. We're to be doing the work through the empowering and leading of the Holy Spirit. Joseph is going to be led along here. But then we see in verse 18, now when they, the brothers, saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So what we see here is that this hatred of his brothers has just continued to fester. 
Time hasn't healed all wounds. No, we need, to, we need to take those to the Lord. And we need to walk in forgiveness of these things. If not, we're going to allow this bitterness to continue to fester and grow. And eventually, if we don't deal with it, and we allow bitterness and envy to creep in and get a hold of our heart, it becomes a poison that grows, and before you know it, it's causing far greater harm and damage in our outlook and in our perspective. It needs to be dealt with and cut out like a cancer before it causes greater harm because this little bit of hatred that's been growing and festering has now become murderous thoughts. They're not just talking smack about Joseph. They're like thinking, we need to kill this guy. This is the level to where this hatred has grown to. Now as the brothers plan and plot, Reuben steps in and he takes some leadership as the eldest of the brothers. Now he's messed up in the past. Remember Genesis chapter 35, that uh, illicit relationship with Billa, Jacob's wife. But now he hopes he can sway his brothers in a more ethical decision. Reuben's plans are to free Joseph and then return him to his father. So moving into verse 23, we, we've seen Joseph is set apart. Joseph is also um, spiritual. He's a servant. But now we see how Joseph is sold. Look at this in verse 23. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty. There was no water in it and they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, what we see here is this incredible callousness that's involved with his brothers right they throw him into the pit they're just ready to destroy their brother and they sit down and feast it's like oh nothing works up an appetite like just some sweet revenge and murder right i mean this is kind of like what they're doing just callousness hardness of heart they're sitting down to feast after roughing up joseph and no doubt this was a pretty harsh treatment of joseph as to ripping off his coat throwing him in a pit we're told in genesis 42 verse 21 that joseph was pleading with them as they feasted the brothers are remembering when they're in egypt how joseph was calling out to them pleading with them these brothers have built up such a hatred that it overrode now every emotion of sympathy they weren't able to think straight see straight i mean their their brothers calling out to them, pleading with them, and they're just going ahead and satisfying their own appetite. I'm sure they lived with that anguish over the years of just hearing that cry of Joseph echoing in the back of their mind, calling out to them from the pit. The acting out of hatred and anger will never make up for the pain that sin, sin brings if left unchecked. That acting out of hatred and anger is never going to make up for the pain that sin brings if left unchecked. 
That's what the brothers were doing for, for many years. Well, Joseph ends up in Egypt. They're hearing the cries of their brother. Nobody confessed it. Nobody talked to Jacob about it. Nobody tried to make it right. Now, at the time the brothers are there, they feast and they see this company of Ishmaelites making their way to Egypt. Judas, Judah, Judas, <laughs> Judah has an idea here. Let's sell Joseph. Let's sell Joseph to them. That way he's off of our hands and now we can technically say that his blood won't be on our hands, right? Because we haven't actually shed blood, we haven't killed him, we just sent him away. So technically we can say, ah, his blood's not on our hands. We can perhaps free ourselves of a little bit of guilt. That's Judah's thinking right now this time. And the brothers all like this idea. So they sold Joseph. Look at verse 29. Then Reuben returned to the pit. And indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more. And I, where shall I go? Now Reuben you know, he stood out as being kind of the only noble one to try and find another way to, you know, defend Joseph. But now we get a glimpse as to his real motive, right? Because he was just simply trying to reposition himself in a favorable spot after that Billa debacle. Because it was all about him. He's saying, there's no more. And, and, and I, where shall I go? Reuben's motive was really about trying to give himself more favor better position. See, when we seek to serve ourselves, we'll see that our plans and hopes often become frustrated. Often never turn out good when we're the focus of what we want to do. Well, verse 31, they took Joseph's tunic. They killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic in many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. Verse 35, and all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So what's interesting is Jacob now, he's tricked much the same way that he tricked his own father and deceived Isaac, right? A kid of the goats was used in both cases. And here now it's a kid of the goats using the blood dipped in on, on the tunic to kind of make it seem like Joseph has been devoured galatians 6 7 says that you reap what you sow and jacob is reaping now the very same things that he himself has sown he's experiencing these same things now throughout the story of joseph we're going to see jacob have a few lapses of faith this is not a man that's still walking in the fullness of the spirit Still given over to the flesh of times. Because what does he say? How does he respond in verse 33? He says, without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. I mean, that's a, that's a pessimistic man right there. That was no doubt the picture that the brothers were trying to give. But Joseph, uh, Jacob doesn't fully know this right now. But he just quickly 
goes into that mode of, oh, this is obviously what's happened. He's no doubt been torn into pieces. He just immediately thinks the worst. There's no faith in the Lord. No seeking the Lord, no, no prayer at this time. Just immediately thinks the worst. You know, many people have shaved years off their life from worrying rather than giving things over to God. See, we're called as believers to walk by faith. We never know what God might be doing or what he might have already done. And until we know the whole picture, the end result, what we're called to do is to trust the Lord and press into him, lean on him, give it over to the Lord, pray, seek him. Don't immediately think the worst. Because in this situation, God was at work preserving Joseph and leading him exactly to where he needed to be. The brothers, desire to keep his dreams from coming true, feel their conspiracy. And in a scene of dramatic irony, the brothers' actions to thwart their little brother set in motion the very events that would lead to Joseph's rise to power and the ultimate fulfillment of his visions. Again, Romans 8, 28 is a key theme in the story of Joseph, that God works all things together for the good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. Joseph is a man that's desiring to hear from the Lord, serve the Lord, and God is taking him exactly where he needs to be. And if only Jacob could have sat back and said, well, I don't know what's happening to Joseph, but I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna trust the Lord here. Would have been much better for him. Well, we'll pick it up in chapter 38. Interesting chapter in chapter 38. Kind of a little, um, yeah, interesting event that goes on there. We'll talk about that next week and continue on in the life of Joseph. Another interesting note here, just before we close, is that picture again of Joseph being sent out to go to Shechem to meet his brothers. You know, they're in the place... Joseph was in a place of Hebron with his father, right? Hebron means communion. And again, what a picture that is of Jesus, who was there just in communion with his father when he was sent on a mission, sent on a mission to go and, and, and save his brothers. And yet, how was Jesus treated? He was treated roughly, poorly, rejected by his brothers, beaten and killed. Joseph is that picture of a man that's there in communion with his father, goes to a distant place, and yet treated harshly. And yet, God's plans were unfolding in a greater way than anybody could have imagined. They'll continue to unfold. God is sovereign, God is good, and he calls us to simply be faithful, to serve him, and to trust him, and we can, because he's a good God. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for tonight here, just for this time to come and gather to worship you, to get into your word, and I pray that this would have been a time where, again, you, you just kind of recalibrated our hearts and got our, our focus onto you where it always needs to be. And Lord, for those that are here tonight that maybe are troubled, hurting, doubting, 
I pray, Lord, that you would just come and minister to them right now. Help them to see, God, that you're at work in ways that we don't always see, that we don't always know. And you're working behind the scenes, moving everything into place so wonderfully. So I pray that tonight, Lord, our faith would just increase, that, Lord, our trust would be in you, that we'd walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, I pray for those that are, are sick and battling through things right now. I pray that you would touch them, that you'd heal them. I pray for Chris specifically, God, in the hospital, that, God, you would just deliver him and heal him completely and allow him, Lord, to just fight through this and uh, to be made well, that you'd do that even tonight here, Lord. Just free him from the sickness and deliver him and, and bring him back home well and safe, Lord. God, we pray that for anybody that's in that position right now where they just need that touch from you. I pray for people, Lord, that are, um, Lord, in a place where they're potentially losing employment. We pray that you would come alongside them and provide for them, Lord, that you'd meet their needs and protect them. God, let's do a work. May this be a season and a time, Lord, where we just see you doing great things, where we begin to operate more in faith and walk by faith. Sometimes you bring us to places where that's our only alternative. It's a good place to be, where we always need to be, but yet, Lord, you you sometimes bring us to those places where we're we're tested to say, how are we gonna live? Are we gonna walk by faith? Are we gonna trust in our own resources? And Lord, may we just walk by faith and trust you. So strengthen us to do that. Go with us now, today. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.